You have the papacy, its history, and its nature. It is hard to imagine a greater contrast than the papacy as it now is, as a political, as a civil institution, as a religious group that has political, civil, and religious power worldwide, and how it began with a single pastor ruling a single church in the city of Rome. Such a greater contrast we could hardly find, but it is for us to understand the course of history because the Lord uses history just as he uses sublimely and first of all his own written word to bring people out of slavery into his own life. And so we present an overview of the papacy from its very beginnings right up to the present John Paul II. The script for tonight's talk is available on our internet web, web page, bereanbeacon.org. It's also available by email if anybody wants to get the full text. The church at Rome at the beginning was a community of men and women under the leadership, sometimes of two, sometimes of one elder. They were governed by the four Gospels and the letters of the Apostles, particularly of Paul. And so all major disputes were worked out by coming back to the authority of Scripture. There was no man lording or ruling over anyone else because they upheld the biblical principle spelt out by the Lord Jesus Christ himself. One is your master, even Christ, and ye are all brethren. But the Scripture had warned clearly and precisely that from the midst of the brotherhood there would arise a power that would attempt to defy and destroy the gospel. And from the very believers there would arise a system that would challenge the Christian church right through history. And this has been true particularly of the Roman Catholic institution. Now, the spread of true Christianity was marvelous, extensive, and fast. We see in the first um, three centuries of the church a remarkable beginning, and it was the zeal of the preachers, and it was the horrendous persecution that came against them that kept the word and those who held to the word pure for the most part. And we have remarkable examples of such as the Vaudois, that later on became the Waldenses, that is a scarlet thread running right through history of the true believers. 
maybe in another presentation we could deal with that. It's a whole topic in itself. How we have true believers right through the course of history. But we are dealing with the, the aberration of Christianity that was to take place in Rome. The reign of the emperor Diocletian was where the true Christians suffered most. But the persecutions ended and with the famous decree that was published in Milan called the Edict of Milan. It was published simultaneously by the two emperors at the time, Constantine in the West and Lucinius in the East. The famous interdict or Edict of Milan Now, what many do not know is that besides recognizing Christendom, it recognized still paganism. And so many say that the Edict of Milan was the beginning or the the bed from which the cancer growth was to come into the church by which many pagan rites were early incorporated into Christendom. So many see this Edict of Milan. And what followed on the Edict of Milan was when the Emperor Constantine, who was now over the whole empire, having defeated Lucinius, when he decided that Christendom should have four major centers of governance just like the empire itself had. The empire had four regencies. So Constantine thought that the church of Christendom should be equally divided into four different patriarchs. And so we had very early on four different centers set up by which we would have a patriarch ruling over the elders in that region called the diocese. This whole idea of diocese and patriarchs goes back to Constantine. And the four great dioceses were, as you should know, Antioch, Alexandria, Jerusalem, and Rome. And these patriarchs governed the elders in their domain. Now there grew up a a respect for an elder depending on the importance of the city and where he was an elder. Now since Rome was the queen of cities, the richest, the wealthiest, and the most powerful city on earth, some of the elders began to reason that if she was the richest, wealthiest, most powerful city on earth, therefore her bishop should in some way be recognized as a ruler. And so they began to give subservience to the bishop of Rome quite early as they looked for their own position. And we have very early on in Christendom, we have this split 
whereby in scripture the term overseer, elder are synonymous. In history they become diverse. And we have bishops now ruling over elders. And the bishops now contriving together to recognize the Bishop of Rome as somebody special. And we're talking about the third going into the fourth century, quite early on. It was also in the fourth century, coming into the fifth century, that the gospel seems to begin to disappear from Christendom. And in its place, we have ceremonialism, ritualism, and even pagan customs beginning to creep in to what had been Christendom. We're not only talking about Rome, but we're talking about other cities. And by the 5th century, as early as the 5th century, we have the word pastor or elder now being substituted for the word priest. And we have priests pretending to be mediators between God and man as early as the 5th century. In the 5th century, we have a remarkable man called Leo I. He's sometimes called Leo the Great from 440 to 461. Leo was the first to establish in writing a supremacy for the Bishop of Rome, a supremacy in spiritual things over other bishops. Just before Leo's time in 330, we had a, a remarkable political change of the seat of the empire from Rome to Constantinople that really freed up the papacy to grow in power and prestige because the emperor had left Rome and was now in Byzantium in Constantinople and the pope was now looked on in many cases for temporal things as well as spiritual things. And things played right into his hand. As you should know from history, we had the invasion of the barbarian nations coming in from the north, coming and threatening the very empire of Rome that looked to be impenetrable for so many centuries. And now barbarian nations coming and attacking Rome. Of these barbarian princes, the most famous was the first to embrace Christianity Roman style. And is a name that everybody should know because he was the first to embrace this type of ritualism that had now become predominant in Rome, Clovis, the king of the Franks. He had promised on the battlefield as he beat the Alemanni that he would become a Christian in this Roman style of Christendom. And he was baptized in Reims in 496. 
He was baptized, becoming the eldest son of the church, in the words of the Pope of the time. The title that still France has in the eyes of the Catholic Church, that France is the eldest son of the church. And then we had many other barbarian princes bowing to Rome, the knee to Rome, the type of Christendom that Rome embraced. And this, such as the Burgundians from southern Gaul, the Visigoths from Spain, the Suevi from Portugal, the Anglo-Saxons from Britain, all became Christians in the Roman sense of the word. And they became Christian by being baptized. That was their acceptance of Christianity. Now this rivalry that was going on between the four different patriarchs of who was greatest was really settled in the year 606 by the emperor now living in Constantinople. Focus declared by an imperial decree that the bishop of Rome was to be preeminent among all bishops of the world. And so the title of Pope of Rome begins to fit the bishop of Rome from that time. And while this decree of focus did not make the papacy it really helped to establish it. Now, how did the papacy come about? One of the big building blocks of the papacy was a forgery, a false document that was accepted as authentic for over 600 years in Christendom. And this is the most famous document and all of us should be very well aware of it. It's called the Donation of Constantine. Now, the document alleges that Constantine, way back when he was still in Rome, handed over a lot of his imperial power, his palace, his prestige, and even some of his cities. He handed it over to the simple bishop of Rome, who was Sylvester in 335. And this is what this document purported, that it was all established way back in the time of Constantine and that all should be bowing the knee to the man whom Constantine had made to be ruler in Christendom. Now, I think we should read directly from the words of this false decretal to give you some idea of the arrogance that was fausted on the world for over 600 years and which people of the world believe for over 600 years. So I give a direct quotation from the fraudulent donation of Constantine. Quotation, we attribute to the See of Peter all the dignity and the glory, all the authority of the imperial power. 
Furthermore, we give to Sylvester and to his successors our palace of the Lateran, which is incontestably the finest palace on the earth. We give him our crown, our mitre, our diadem, and all our imperial vestments. We transfer to him the imperial dignity. We bestow on the holy pontiff in free gift the city of Rome and all the western cities of Italy. To cede precedence to him, we divest ourselves of our authority over all those provinces, and we withdraw from Rome, transferring the seat of our empire to Byzantium, inasmuch as it is not proper that an earthly emperor should preserve the least authority where God hath established, established the head of his religion. End of quotation from the fraudulent document. This donation of Constantine was most probably forged in the year 754, if not a few years prior to it. Of it, the historian Wiley says the following. In it, Constantine is made to speak the Latin of the 8th century and to address the Bishop of Rome, Bishop Sylvester, as Prince of Apostles, Vicar of Christ. During more than 600 years, Rome impressively cited this deed of gift, inserted it in her codes, permitted none to question its genuineness, and burnt those who refused to believe it. The first light of the 16th century sufficed to discover the cheat. End of quotation. It was also in the 8th century that a most considerable addition took place, in fact, to temporal power. The donation was a grasp of power, but it didn't actually have it. But we did have the beginnings of temporal power in the 8th century. The Arian kings of Lombardy, and you might remember who the Arians were. They were those who denied the divinity of Christ and had grown quite strong. So we had political power behind many of the Arian elders who were in heresy. Well, these Arian kings who had embraced Arianism were intent on conquesting Italy and even Rome itself. At the same time, the Muslims who had overrun Africa had conquered some of Spain, and they were threatening to come even into Rome itself. So Pope Stephen II looked to France for help, and he called on the famous Pepin de Short. He was mayor of the palace. And he had usurped the kingdom and was just trying to make himself king when he got this request to come to the aid of the Pope. And so under the agreement that the Pope would recognize him as king, 
he crossed the Alps and came into Italy. He defeated the Lombards and he laid many of these cities right before the Pope as his cities. And so he gave the Pope temple power. And that famous time in history was in 755, the beginning of the temporal power of the papacy. The papacy now having civil jurisdiction. This temporal power of the Pope was augmented by an even more famous son of Pepin, Charlemagne. Charlemagne was again waxing strong, just as his father did. And the Pope at the time was seeing the same problem as a previous Pope, that the Lombards were again threatening to besiege Rome. And he called on France under Charlemagne to come to his help. And Charlemagne defeated the Lombards and laid more at the feet of the Pope than even his son, Pepin the Short, had done. And then we had the hallmark of history, a date that nobody can forget. 800, Charlemagne, Charles the Great, kneels before Leo III on his knees on Christmas Eve, 800. And the Pope places on his head the crown of the Western Empire. This was significant because it was showing the Pope's zeal to be the one who made kings. And what was, to, in actual fact, become a reality later on, at least an embryo, was beginning to be recognized in this dramatic movement that took place when Charlemagne knelt at the feet of Leo III to receive the crown of the Western Empire. The fraudulent document of the donation of Constantine was already bearing fruit. In 865, Nicholas I used the donation of Constantine in a way to bring bishops and even princes under his jurisdiction. And we now have popes from Nicholas I on, drunken with their own pride, some popes in their teens, and some who lose all sense of propriety, even ordinary decency. Some of the greatest immorality that's happened in public domain has happened in these centuries with drunken immorality in the Vatican. And then we had the infamous women of history, Theodora and Marosia, who governed the papal throne for many years. The unholy sea, which pretended to be the Sea of Peter and ruled over kings and bishops, was sunk in the very dredges of sin and immorality. 
Theodora and Morosia installed and deposed popes at their will. And for two whole centuries, the papacy was fought over, purchased, and it was like a trading block or uh, item between many of the ruling families in Italy. History in its most morass and most gruesome immorality where the papacy was like a pawn to the huge, powerful Italian families. Then we have another turning point in history, and this is under a man that history cannot forget. 1073, the famous Hildebrand. Gregory VII is known by the name he had before he became pope. He's the only pope that retained the name Hildebrand, and throughout history he's known mostly by this name Hildebrand rather than Gregory VII. He brought into the papacy a rigorous discipline, and in place of the lusts of the flesh that had predominated the papacy for 200 years, we now had the beginnings of what was to be many centuries of the lusts of the mind. Where Hildebrand Gregory VII saw himself as the regent of God and that his kingdom was nothing less than the rule of God on earth. This zealous, impetuous, intellectual, and hard-working Hildebrand set about to bring not just bishops and spiritual power, but even temporal power under his jurisdiction. To quote from the historian Dupin, quotation, no sooner was this man made pope then he formed a design of becoming Lord, spiritual and temporal over the whole earth, the supreme judge and determiner of all affairs, both ecclesiastical and civil, the distributor of all manner of graces of whatever kind, the disposer not only of archbishoprics, bishoprics, and other ecclesiastical benefices, but also of kingdoms, states, and of the revenues of particular persons. To bring about this resolution, he made use of ecclesiastical authority and the spiritual sword. End of quotation. It wasn't just the spiritual sword, it was also even physical power that he used. And he was successful to some extent. It was from his day that we have what is right down to our own day, the appointment of all bishops took place from Rome, going back to Hildebrand. All spiritual power must come out of Rome. And so that here recently in the United States, the Archbishop of Philadelphia is appointed by the Bishop of Rome. 
it all began with Hildebrand. And how did he bring the clergy under his thumb? It was by the rule of clerical celibacy. Most of the elders at the time were married men, and they were commanded to leave their wives and not live with their wives and to live celibate lives. And the law of celibacy became written into the laws of the church from the time of Hildebrand on. He saw that power over men could only be celibate men because if men were married and had responsibility for families and bringing up children, as the scripture says of an elder, he would be independent and under the authority of scripture. But he, Hildebrand, wanted him under the thumb of Rome. And so clerical celibacy was his, one of his main weapons in getting power onto himself. Gregory VII, the famous Hildebrand, established the principle that the Pope is Christ's vicar and that by divine right he ruled even over kings. He tasted some success in his own time, but the foundation that he led was built on by his successors. And with his successors we have the establishment of Rome's authority over kings and princes. By edict, by anatema, by torture and inquisition, by many sacked cities, by lives burnt at the stake, by fields that were deluged in blood was this principle of the Pope's authority over temporal sovereigns established. Now, the ones who really finalized the Pope's authority over kings and princes was the famous Innocent III from 1198 to 1216 and Boniface VIII from 1294 the 1303. And they put the final touches to the power of the Pope over the kingdoms of the world. Now one of the ways this was done was the power and military arm of Rome that had been seen in the many crusades against the Muslims that these armies now were turned against believers instead of against the infidel. And the beginning of this, which was to rise into the Inquisition, was Innocent's war against the Albigenses. The Albigenses had one of the finest civilizations in literature, in art, in biblical understanding, that the world has ever known. They had remarkably grown in understanding of finance and of the gospel and of Christian living. They are a, a remarkable people. 
and the armies of Rome are turned against them. And the cruelty in which it was, it was, it was laid out is unbelievable. Whole villages and towns were indiscriminately butchered. Many were burnt alive at the stake, and others suffered horrendous, hideous torture. The deeds of history are recorded. It is sad that so few people understand how the Crusades became the beginning of the Inquisition under the so-called Innocent III. He was followed some time later by an even more stubborn, ambitious, intelligent, an immoral person as Boniface VIII. He believed that the Pope was the vicar of Christ and that he had extraordinary powers over all temporal princes as well as spiritual princes. And he published his famous decree or papal bull that is still in the annals of papal documents. It's called Unum Sanctum. I would like to give the most famous line from Unum Sanctum. It states the following. We declare, say, define, and proclaim to every human creature that they, by necessity for salvation, are entirely subject to the pontiff of Rome. If you were not subject to the pontiff of Rome, you were wicked. And you could be tortured, or you could be incarcerated, or your property could be taken from you. And so we had, from this time, from Innocent the Third, right up to Pope Pius the Seventh. 75 popes in a row, 75 popes, one after the other, who approved of torture, burning, confiscation of property, and horrific acts of cruelty against Bible believers. It is here that we have the annals of the Vaudois and the Waldenses, and you will find on our webpage some of the these horrific um, torture and the wars that were made against the Vaudois in those centuries on our webpage taken from the history of Wiley. The ghastly torture was decreed by the popes, the most famous being Alexander the fourth, Clement the fourth, Urban the fourth, and Clement the fifth, in devising and even adding to how torture was to be done. The scripture which the Lord had prophesied was fulfilled. The papacy had become drunken with the blood of the saints and the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. She drank deeply of the blood of the saints for over 600 years. Now, Bible believers talk about the 
six years of the Holocaust. And that is important that we would remember the Holocaust. But we're talking here about 605 years of brutal torture of the believers by the papal system. Just as streams flow back to their source, so the prophecies that the Lord had predicted go back to their source, the papacy, as she was the one who drank deeply of the blood of the saints. I'd like to quote from the famous History of Romanism by John Dowling. This book has been recently republished. It was published, first of all, in the 19th century, and we have uh, many chapters of it on our internet webpage. But I'd like to quote what he says about how many died under the Inquisition. Quotation. From the birth of Popery in 600 to the present time, it is estimated by careful and credible historians that more than 50 million of the human family have been slaughtered for the crime of heresy by popish persecutors. An average of more than 40,000 religious murders for every year of the existence of popery. End of quotation. The chambers of torture of the Inquisition lasted for more than 600 years over all the nations where Rome governed. Now, it is a little bit difficult to read what these tortures were, and I ask that you bear with me because I think we just have to deal with some of the tortures. And I'm reading from the historian Wiley. Quotation, we pass on into the chamber where more dreadful sights meet our gaze. It is hung round and around with instruments of torture, so numerous that it would take a long while even to name them, and so diverse that it would take a longer time to describe them. We must take them in groups, for it were hopeless to think of going over them one by one and particularizing the mode in which each operated. The ingenuity and art with which all of them have been adapted to their horrible end. There were instruments for compressing the fingers till the bones should be squeezed into splinters. There were instruments for probing below the fingernails Till an exquisite pain like a burning fire would run along the nerves. There were instruments for tearing out the tongue, for scooping out the eyes, and for gobbing out the ears. There were bunches of iron cords with spikes circled at the end of each whip for tearing the flesh from the back till bones and sinews were laid bare. There were iron cases for legs which were tightened upon the limb in them by means of a screw till flesh and bone were reduced to a jelly. 
there were cradles full of sharp spikes in which the victim, victims were laid and rolled from side to side, the wretched occupant being pierced at each moment, movement of the machine with innumerable sharp points. There were iron ladens with long handles for holding molten lead and boiling pitch which were poured down the throats of the victim to convert his body into a boiling cauldron. In the written notes I go on, it becomes more ghastly, but I just stop there because it gives you a, a touch of what we are dealing with and the type of torment that Rome devised against true believers for so many years. It was with the authority of the apostolic say that these tortures were, were um, carried out. And it, so rigorous were the rules of Rome that the tortures could not be changed except with the authority of the papal see itself. One of the best summaries of what the Inquisition was all about is done by a Roman Catholic historian and a very famous man in history, Lord Acton. Lord Acton says the following, the Inquisition is particularly the weapon and particularly the work of the popes. It stands out from all those things in which they cooperated, followed and assented as the distinctive feature of papal Rome. It was set up, renewed, and perfected by a long series of acts emanating from the supreme authority in the church. No other institution, no doctrine, no ceremony is so distinctively the individual creation of the papacy except its dispensing power. It is the principal thing with which the papacy is identified and by which it must be judged. The principle of the Inquisition is the Pope's sovereign power over life and death. Whoever disobeys him should be tried and tortured and burnt. If it cannot be done, formalities may be dispensed with and the culprit may be killed like an outlaw. That is to say, the principle of the Inquisition is murderous. And a man's opinion of the papacy is regulated and determined by his opinion of religious assassination. End of quotation from Acton. In their tortures and massacres in these many centuries, all of history, both secular and sacred, are harmonious and bear witness to the merciless, cruel perpetrators of persecution against God's people, that these were the religious leaders of the papacy. All history bears witness to that fact. 
And then in this tremendous gloom, in the tremendous darkness that covered the earth, there arises the light of the Reformation in the 16th century. It is just remarkable. And to give a summary of the Reformation, I quote from the book Heroes of the Reformation by Heartland Publications, beginning of the quotation. The Reformation possesses definite characteristics, many of which set it apart from other revolutions in history. One of the distinguishing features was its territorial scope. It began simultaneously and independently in various European nations. At the same time as Martin Luther posted his 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg in 1517, John Colet, Dean of St. Paul's in England, was denouncing the abuses of the Catholic Church and upholding the supremacy of the Bible as the rule of faith. Lefebvre in France and Zwingli in Switzerland were at the same time preaching against the evils of the Church and pointing to Christ as the door of salvation. Although Luther is called the originator of the Reformation, the other reformers discovered and preached the same message as he did without having received knowledge of it, of it from him. There was a power, however, that brought the Reformation into existence and made its progress possible. That was the Holy Scriptures. The Greek New Testament prepared by Erasmus was a help to scholars all over Europe in learning the way of truth and life. Once the Reformation got underway, there existed a great friendship and fraternization among the Reformers. There were frequent exchanges of ideas and hospitalities. One of the surprising features of the Reformation was this extent of contact and cooperation among the reformers as they encouraged each other in their efforts. The reformation spread with great rapidity that so much could be executed in so short a time, bringing a complete change in thought and habits, still remains one of the amazing events of history. The reformation began at Europe's citadels of learning, its universities. There were scholars such as Luther and Melanchthon at Wittenberg, Erasmus and Colet at Oxford, Bilney, Latimer, Cartwright at Cambridge, Lefebvre and Farrell at Paris. Without exception, the leaders of the Reformation were highly trained men of that generation. In some instances, such as Bees and Tyndale, they ranked high as men of letters. Others, like Cranmer and Valdes, carried responsible positions at court. Why was it so necessary at that time, when at other ages men of lesser abilities 
and education have been used effectively to preach the gospel and with power. At least two answers can be given. Only the educated knew Hebrew, Latin, and Greek necessary to read the Bible as it then existed. Then, too, it was essential that the Bible be translated into the vernacular of each country so that the common people had the privilege of reading the scriptures in their own tongue. This task demanded scholarship. With these two phases must be combined the indispensable third, the invention of the printing press, which made it possible that publications of the translations of the Bible could be brought into existence at the price at the common man's purse, within the range of the common man's purse. Within a 10-year period, nations of Europe received translations of the Bible into their own tongue. Luther translated for Germany in 1522, Lefebvre in France in 1523, Tyndale for England in 1525, Bruccioli in Italy in 1532. The Reformation was united that it was not by fasting, money, penance that salvation was to be gotten, but through the famous five biblical principles. Right across Europe and independent of each other, the five biblical principles were established. These principles are the following that on the authority of the Holy Scriptures alone, man has the message of the salvation before the All-Holy God. And before the All-Holy God, he is saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone, and all power, glory, and majesty to God alone. These were the five biblical principles that brought a about this greatest revival that the world has ever known. Now I want to emphasize, and I think it is of great importance, that these men of the Reformation were very conscious of biblical truth and they laid down these five biblical principles. But these men were also men who understood history. They were the ones who exposed at the very beginning of the Reformation the false donation of Constantine and other false things like the Isidorian decretals. They were ones who understood history. And I am convinced that if we are to see revival in our own day, it is again based on these five biblical principles and with us understanding intellectually and factually what has happened in the course of history. And that ignorance of history means that we are doomed to repeat it. Or we have no understanding what is happening before our very eyes. Now, we had the papacy still continuing 
as you know, the Counter-Reformation took place and the, the beginning of the Jesuit order. But then a fatal wound seemingly hit the papacy head-on in the year 1798. Napoleon, who was sweeping Europe at the time, sent one of his generals into Rome and took the Pope from his throne and took his temporal power from him. That was Pope Pius VI. And so the papacy was left without temporal and civil power. And so we have now a papacy divested from its, its physical territory and its civil power. But during these years, when it was denuded as it was, as it were, from its civil side that it has always relied on, the popes began to build up internally. And the famous Pio Nono, as he's still known by his Italian name, Pius IX, thought of the wondrous idea of papal infallibility, that the pope could be decreed to be inerrant, that the very attribute of God of inerrancy could be declared of a man sitting on the papal throne. Now this, against all the teaching of Scripture, where it is evident that God alone is inerrant, and against all the teaching of history, remarkably portrayed at the time by the famous Dollinger, that many of the popes were heretics, and that popes had denied other popes, so that it was an absurdity, not only in scriptural terms, but in historical terms, in face of all the opposition, and even with many bishops walking out, uh, when the famous decree was put before Vatican Council I in 1870, the decree was put in place that the Pope is infallible. And this was to be a remarkable card that is still carried down to our present time. And then the papacy set about internal reform. It could get its own house in order, and it could get its civil power in order whenever it came back. Believe it or not, they began to, to put into writing its own decrees, even its civil decrees, which it could not, it could not implement. The famous canon law of 1917. And then the most remarkable fact in history was that the mortal wound that seemingly had come against Rome was all turned around and healed in the year 1929 when the Pope entered into civil agreement with Mussolini and there was set up on the seven hills of Rome the papal territory. Papal territory is not only on Vatican Hill, it's on the seven hills of Rome, the Lateran being the main cathedral of the Pope. And so the woman sat again on the seven hills and with civil power 
from the famous Concord with Mussolini in 1929. A famous concordat that was to be overshadowed by a more infamous one that was to happen later on when Pius XII was to enter into civil concordat with Adolf Hitler. And so the Pope, having built up its power in canon law and its decree of infallibility, again possessed civil jurisdiction. And then we might think that the massacres of the past had finished, but they had not finished. They've come into living memory, even my own memory in growing up as a young boy in Europe. The massacres of Rome and its intrigue has continued into the 20th century. And the popes have entered into league with some of the most famous Roman Catholic dictators that the world has ever known. Adolf Hitler in Germany from 1933 to 1945. Benito Mussolini in Italy from 1922 to 1943. Francisco Franco in Spain from 1936 to 1975. Antonio Salazar in Portugal from 1932 to 1968. And Juan Perón in Argentina from 1946 to 1955. And possibly the most barbarous and infamous of them all. Antic, ante Pavlik in Croatia in those disastrous years when the papacy set up the state in Croatia from 1941 to 1945. I would ask that you read details of all of this in the book that has been produced called Ecclesiastical Megalomania by John Robbins. John Robbins lays out in her own time and right through the history the socio-political thought behind the papacy and what it has done up to recent times. And it is a remarkable book. And it is a book that I think that no one could really leave aside and not read to understand Ecclesiastical Megalomania and that's what it exactly is in the book by John Robbins. It is also available through our own ministry. The papacy has refused to open its secret archives to scholars, and its league with the, such as in Croatia and with Nazi Germany, is still not known in all its details, but enough details are known to show that the Pope was in real uh, legal um, agreements with these dictators and that the massacres and horrendous deeds that were done by these Catholic dictators were done with the uh, support of the Vatican 
often the, the actual support, like in Croatia, or turning a blind eye and saying nothing, like with the Concordat with Adolf Hitler in Germany. And even the pipeline of the Nazis afterwards, of course, coming through the Vatican, which is uh, documented in Dave Hunt's book, The Woman Rides the Beast. We have a change of strategy happening in modern day Catholicism. And this is documented by a man who seemingly is Roman Catholic, uh, Jean Guy Valancourt, in this book called Papal Power. He has shown how the papacy has been very clever in changing its strategy. After some remarkable uh, um, phrases about the Inquisition and burning of heretics and the Crusades, he uh, turns um, from these periods of extreme forms of hierarchical coercion to the later feudal period that was coming in. And he says that after 1870, it was no longer possible for the Church of Rome to do its power by physical means. And so they went into other avenues by which they would contain, retain control. And so we have the setting up of Catholic universities, Catholic hospitals, Catholic schools, right across Europe and, of course, across the United States of America. And bishop and priests become mere functionaries in the hand of Rome, and the laity are mere pawns in the fist of Rome, and she now claims power through hospitals and through her civil concordats with nations. Another huge turnabout came, took place in the Vatican Council II, Vatican I, known for its decree on infallibility, Vatican II, known for its decree that pagan religions were no longer forbidden, but the Buddhist faith, the Hindu faith, and the faith of Islam were now ways acceptable to reach God. And Bible believers were no longer classified as heretics, but they were classified as separated brethren. But their modus operandi was to win people to the bosom of Mother Church. And so I'd like to read from one of the papal decrees after Vatican II, post-conciliar document number 42, states the following. Dialogue is just, not just an end in itself, not just an academic discussion. Rather, ecumenical dialogue serves to transform modes of thought and behavior and daily life of those non-Catholic communities. In its way, it aims at preparing the way for their unity of faith into the bosom of a church that is one and visible. 
end of quotation. So Rome intends to bring back Bible believers and bring even pagan religions under her jurisdiction. We have at the present time a remarkable man, and I think many of us are unaware of the real power behind John Paul II. He is, in my estimation, the second Hildebrand because he has understood the power of law. He took the decree of infallibility and brought it to a height that had been declared at Vatican I. And then he took the canon law of 1917 and he produced the Code of Canon Law 1983. And so he has brought into legal format the Church of Rome has been able to govern itself and govern Christendom. And it is frightening to read some of the decrees that are laid out in this present-day Code of Canon Law. For example, Law Number 1311 states the church has an innate and proper right to coerce offending members of the Christian faithful by means of papal sanctions. Note it says the Christian faithful. It does not say the Catholic people. By means of papal sanctions. It talks about papal penalties and it lays out penalties that are down to confiscation of goods and spiritual divesting of powers for those who will not submit their intellect and will to the Roman pontiff. Corporeal punishment is still spelled out in papal decrees. And while it is not possible, it is all in black and white in papal rule. The Vatican has also entered into papal concordance with most of the nations of the world, including Muslim nations, where there is a civil agreement between the ruling civil state and the Vatican. And the Vatican, in its decrees, in this code of canon law, says it is the Pope's right to judge even the highest civil rulers. And so we have laid out something far beyond Hildebrand ever dreamed of. And while the papacy is not now exercising this type of power, we wonder what it will become. At the moment, I am preparing another paper on the European Union and the papacy. I think it'll probably be one of the more important papers I've ever done. I'm doing it together with Michael Dissemblian. It's frightening because the imperial power of imperial Rome is still in the hands of papal Rome. And its power in law, 
civilly with rulers of the nations is in place now more than it ever was at any time in history. And if it gets a predominance in the European Union, which is quite likely to, as the main votes will go to the largest nations, such as Poland when it comes in, and Spain, it is frightening to think of what power, civilly and temporarily, the Vatican could have again in the foreseeable future. It is for us to understand that we must understand the principles of Scripture. The Scripture says, Ye are all brethren. One is your Lord and Master. It is the gospel is the power of salvation. And to anyone who looks to rituals or ceremonies to be saved, they are not only deluded, but they are damned for all eternity. And so it is for us to proclaim the gospel of Christ Jesus, that we are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It is Christ Jesus and him alone that has brought about redemption, and that we are commanded to believe on him whom the Father has sent. And that is the simple message. And it is for us with an urgency to proclaim the gospel to Catholics who are locked into this system, who are citizens, first of all, of Rome before they're citizens of any nation. It is for us to preach the gospel to them. And it is for us to begin understanding history. Because, as I said earlier on, if we are to have true revival, it is by coming back to the very principle that we have one authority in Scripture, one grace of Christ Jesus, one faith, and the one person in which we are saved, and it's God only gets praise and glory. And we understand the hands that are stained with blood and still has the legal power to do all that she did in the past if she ever got the position again. And so I urge you to be men and women of history, to understand your history. And though we are commanded in Scripture not to forget what the Lord has done, we are to understand that right through history we had true believers. And they stood firm. And to understand that besides this aberration that we have dealt with tonight, we had true Bible believers right through history. And from the time of the Reformation on, even augmented. And it is for us to stand and proclaim. And we pray that he who is the Son of Man would breathe forth, and that into the Reformation nations and Reformation churches and Bible-believing churches, he would breathe forth his spirit that dead bones could rise up as an army unto the Lord as was seen in that beautiful prophecy in Ezekiel. But it would be more than fulfilled in our own day 
the dead bones would hear the voice of the Son of God and live. And that is my prayer, that we would have true revival in our day. And that Christ Jesus, who has begotten us by his will, would be the first fruits of many creatures, that many would be saved unto his glory. And as the true gospel goes forth and a true understanding of history, we would see many saved to the praise of the glory of his grace. Amen and amen.